Alright, so in this section of the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, as we are sort of concluding it with verse 13, in this section of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus turns from telling us to ask God for a provision to provide our daily needs um, and forgiving our daily debts to asking God not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. Now, when we first uh, read this verse, uh, if it's isolated from the rest of Scripture and uh, misinterpreted, we can look at what Jesus is teaching us to pray and come away with wrong conclusions about God. Some might look at this verse and assume that because it says, lead us not into temptation, that there are other times where God may lead us into temptation to be tempted as if God himself is the tempter. But what does James 1.13 tell us? What does it say? It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, he cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so thinking about James 13 in connection with do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, I want to talk a little bit more about James just to give us some a helpful framework here. So when James uh, in 1.13 says, uh, let, let no one say when he is tempted that it is God who tempts me because God tempts no one. James continues and he goes on to say that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. <coughs> so the Bible reminds us and it really grounds us in the fact that temptation to sin, yes, comes from without. But since we're corrupted and sinful uh, creatures and we have sinful natures, it also comes from within. And we give in to sin by our own inclinations, by our own desires. So for God to sin or to tempt to sin is impossible. It's something that he can't do because it goes against his holy and corruptible character. Now, <clears throat> Where in uh, James, well, where's James 1.13 placed in chapter 1 of James? It's right after, you will face various trials of various kinds, and every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the order is, you will face trials. God does not tempt to sin. And God is still good and does not change. That's how James sort of orders his instruction there. So James is assuming that when we face trials, which we do, we'll be tempted to think that God is all of a sudden against us and be tempted to blame God for the sin we commit under that specific trial, whatever it is. But again, God does not tempt sin. Now, back to Matthew 6.13 and lead us not into temptation. Um, we, uh, this can also be translated as uh, do not lead us into the place of temptation. Again, we're closing out our thinking on the Lord's Prayer 
and, and are looking at the Lord's Prayer in Scripture, and we're thinking about how we should see and understand what Jesus is teaching us to pray here. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So again, it can be translated as lead us not into the place of temptation. A place of testing to the corruption or destruction of our faith and obedience. John Calvin says, we ask the Lord um, that he would not cause us to be thrown down or to suffer um, as to be overwhelmed by temptation. Now, although God does not tempt us to sin, he does at times test our faith. Uh, He tests our faith for our own growth and maturity. And we see this in Genesis 22 with even Abraham and Isaac. So you remember the narrative. God makes a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. But that doesn't happen right away. He doesn't promise and then it happens. Uh, Some time goes by and Abraham has to wait. And unfortunately, and eventually God gave Abraham his son from his own body. Um, Although Abraham was old, God fulfilled his promise and Isaac was born. But we know what happened. God did test Abraham. And we see this test in Genesis 22, 2, when God says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, for whom you've waited this long time, the one whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac to the mountain to be sacrificed. And just as Abraham gets ready, he lifts the knife to kill his son, the Lord stops him. And he says to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the body or or, on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now there's a a lot going on in that narrative that points to Christ, I believe. Um, and God providing a ram in the thicket and how God has sent his only son and he did not uh, withhold the knife of his wrath but plunge it into Christ for our justification. But in this narrative, God, he tests him. And so here Abraham was tested and he did not fail the test. And Romans 4 actually gives us a commentary on Genesis 22 and says that, No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So among other things, this was a testing for Abraham's growth in faith. Now, the second part of the petition um, in this petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the second part. This is something called parallelism, which is something you see in Hebrew uh, literature, where uh, there are two parts of the petition, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And the second part shines light on the first part. 
so these verses are linked by the word but that connects them together. Or this verse is linked by the word but that connects them together, these petitions. And so the temptation here that we're asking the Father not to lead us into is evil. And the way that this verse reads in the original language is not just evil generally, but evil in particular. Um, deliver us from evil. Um, so we should understand it as deliver us from the evil one. Really, deliver us from Satan. So <clears throat> when Jesus teaches us to pray, he's teaching us to ask the Father to deliver us from the temptations and snares of the evil one. So praying that God would, um, that God leads us away from Satan's devices and <clears throat> traps, <clears throat> away from his attempts to entice us to sin, to crush our confidence in Christ, our Savior. Now, if that is how we ought to be thinking about this and praying, Lord, uh, lead us, uh, do not lead us in temptation, do not lead us into uh, enticements from the evil one. What do you think is the main way that Satan tries to uh, entice and crush the uh, hope and uh, confidence of the Christian? What is the main way you think he probably does that? <clears throat> Condemnation. Condemnation, yeah. I would agree. I think it's uh, condemnation. I think it's uh, accusations. Um, as the accuser of the brethren, which Satan is, the, the accuser, uh, one of the primary ways Satan does this is through accusing us of our sin, our fallen nature, and our corruption. Uh, the sin that we commit that disqualifies us from earning Christ, uh, the favor of God. And what are some verses that we can go to to encourage us, even in the midst of accusations from the evil one, which are very well, real, real temptations and accusations, in the midst of that, where can we go in Scripture to fight, to war against uh, accusations and uh, condemnation from the devil, the, the tempter? What are some verses that you've sort of equipped yourself with? Jen? What's that? Yeah, which says what? <clears throat> there is therefore now no condemnation. 31, yep. And any other scriptures? Any other passages come to mind? It's the first one I thought of too. <clears throat> yeah, so that's a, that's a great place to go, Romans, uh, to equip us um, to fight against Satan and his temptations. Romans uh, 8, 33 to 35, that's another, another place. I'll just read it for us. <clears throat> That has overtaken you, that is uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And what I love about that passage is um, it reminds us that we're not the only ones facing temptation um, or being tempted. Um, uh, the Bible says even Christ, uh, because he was tempted, is able to um, help those who are being tempted. Um, but that verse, it turns us from looking at and realizing that we're not the only ones being tempted to God's 
holy and faithful character, um, which is the best thing for the Christian to look away from self to God. And then Romans 8, 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. It's a rhetorical question, which he answers um, by pointing to Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So places we can go to encourage our own hearts in temptations like this. So the scripture memory that we do as a church comes hmm. from the fighter verses. And yep. if anybody has the app, um, not only can you look at the verses by what's for the week, yeah. but they also have a topical index. And so like, you know, so whether you're battling anger, anxiety, contentment, depending on Christ, and yeah. you can go to find a text, yeah. And they're all just yeah. about fighting, Come you on. know? Yeah. Uh, the security we have in Christ. They're, they're really, you know. And so I will often come here. Yeah. Um, especially when I was in the hospital over mm. the summer. I just went through several of the topics. Right. And just meditated on those scriptures. Yeah, amen. Hiding that in your heart. Yeah, amen. Yeah. George? So someone already mentioned Second Peter 2, 9. And uh, then so. the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Amen. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Amen. Which highlights the omniscient power of God. He's able to deliver and he will execute perfect judgment. And by God's mercy, that judgment will not be in a, an arrow of wrath for the believer, but because of Christ, it is, uh, it's grace and it's mercy. Um, and there's therefore now no condemnation. Luther, Martin Luther struggled with this too, um, just as he uh, warred in his own heart. He wrote that sometimes he would uh, pick up his inkwell, his ink bottle, and throw it across the room at and he would say, Satan was there. Satan was standing there and he was condemning me. And he would then turn to prayer. And he would turn to the Lord's Prayer, actually, and turn to this, a petition in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. He talked about Satan's constant assault against him to try to get him to fall into uh, despair or compromise or uh, deep depression which actually a lot of the reformers struggle with, um, how Satan would be tempting him to deny the faith. And so uh, even Luther in his struggle um, against sin would rightly go to God's word. <clears throat> um, <laughs> maybe, maybe. And there are, you know, it's, as, as I think about this, and as I was thinking about this in my study, just there, there are, I think, there have been extremes in, in uh, just Christendom as we think about uh, Satan, right? So there are, I think, some theological traditions that um, they make more, they, they overestimate, they, they ascribe to Satan more authority and more power than he actually has. I think they forget that he's a created being. Uh, on the other end, I think that uh, there can be an extreme where Satan is underestimated, 
where um, we can forget that there is actually a war happening and a real tempter and accuser who is Satan. And so I think we, we, we want to be biblically, we want to be grounded in scripture as it informs us and tells us about Satan and how the Christian is to uh, war against um, uh, uh, sin, uh, flesh, by virtue of their union with Christ, right? So we don't pick up, you know, physical swords and, you know, go trying to cut down, you know, <laughs> angels or fallen angels. But we, um, we, we trust that Christ is our righteousness, which we'll actually get into because it's connected to this petition and how we ought to, to pray. Um, <clears throat> so um, at times, Satan... So, or that. Oh, so, a sovereign uh, God who is in control of all things, he's not uh, in this sort of tug of war with, with Satan. Um, we don't want to have wrong views about Satan or about God, but some have come to the conclusion as well that there's this sort of cosmic tug of war between God and the devil over men's souls. And sometimes God wins, sometimes Satan wins, and there's this sort of back and forth. But that's not something that we see in scripture either. Satan is a created being. Um, uh, and either God is absolutely sovereign or he is not. And there are at times in scripture where we see um, God by his absolute sovereign and authority and unchanging power, um, even over Satan, um, using uh, Satan and his uh, uh, temptations even to... Uh, preserve, to show his power in preserving his people through temptation and also to confirm the wicked in their sinfulness. And all this is done, of course, to the praise of God's glorious grace and the fulfillment of his decrees. But um, it's been said, Satan is God's Satan. The point there is that Satan is not... Um, Independent. He's not this ruling authority along with God. He's a creature. Um, and God, who is absolutely sovereign, or not sovereign at all, at times in Scripture we see him um, using um, or permitting Satan, even in his devices, to display his glory and power as he preserves his people in the midst of temptation. Right? So that's not something that's foreign to Scripture, and we'll talk about that a little bit too. Chapter 3, 1 um, of the 689 is carefully worded and extremely helpful. It says this, Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature, Satan or the man, or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decrees. <clears throat> now let's work through this a little bit and talk about it a little bit. <clears throat> Genesis, <clears throat> excuse me. Genesis begins with God and follows with the creation of all things. He created man upright, and Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall to their own lust for autonomy, power, and self-government. And by God's inscrutable wisdom, 
Um, in this narrative is the presence of a serpent, who the Bible says is actually Satan. He deceives Adam and Eve uh, to rebel and follow him. His temptation to sin comes through the simple question of, did God say? Right? So he tempted them to question God's supreme authority, the rule and commands of their creator. And unfortunately, our first parents fall. And in their fall, we fell. And through this, death came upon all of us. Now, in the narrative of Genesis 3, um, there's a backdrop to this sort of situation. And the backdrop is the probation of Adam. In other words, he was being tested. God promised to give him life if he obeyed and promised death if he transgressed, God, transgressed God's commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you think about it, this was the most important test of any created being. Uh, the whole human race depended upon this one man's obedience and disobedience. And Adam, God's son, failed it. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was being tested. Job was tested. We see Job also being tested by Satan. And Job is actually pointed out by God. God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan tells God that he's uh, faithful because you put a hedge of protection around him. So God removes the hedge of protection and tells Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, take all that he has, but don't touch him. Satan goes and takes away all that he has, and he comes back to God, and he says, well, Job keeps his integrity because he hasn't suffered physically. God permits Satan to afflict Job physically, and Job keeps his integrity. And even though um, his wife even tells him to curse God and die, um, I think this, that's interesting too, in the garden, Wife says something, Adam concedes. Here, wife speaks and Job obeys. The point is not the woman, the point is the obedience. Job says, you speak um, as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job says to his wife. And in the end, he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job was tested by God at the hand of Satan. We see also Christ tempted. So we're thinking about Jesus teaching us to pray Matthew 6.13. We've already, already explained that uh, God is not in cahoots with Satan. They're not partners together um, uh, with God being the, the tempter but we're drawing out the absolute sovereignty of God. Either he's sovereign, absolutely, or he's not sovereign at all. And so even temptations to sin that Satan is fully uh, held accountable for, and we, when we sin, God is not involved in, yet sovereign over. 
So again, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is the worst testing ever endured by a human being? What is the most brutal satanic attack and testing in the history of man? It is the one given to the God man, Jesus Christ. Dan Wallace said that this verse should not um, be ultimately translated as do not allow us to be tempted, but do not lead us into temptation. The lead us here is intentional, and it's not passive, but it's actually active. It has implications for God not um, allowing us to be tempted, but it has a deeper meaning here. So the broader context in Matthew shows us why the Lord said, do not lead us into temptation. After Jesus' baptism in Matthew 4.1, Matthew 4.1 says that he was, what? Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Christ was led by who? The Spirit. Led where? Into the wilderness. And for what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. And then Mark 1.12 says that the Spirit uh, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So there's actually a sense in which Christ was delivered into the hands of the evil one by the Holy Spirit himself to be tempted. Matthew 4 shows us that the Spirit is never uh, subject to Satan in any of this, but the Spirit is the agent ultimately responsible for leading Jesus into the wilderness, driving him into the wilderness. The Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted, although the Spirit himself is not the tempter. He's not responsible for Jesus' temptation. Satan is. But here it's plain that God led Jesus to be tempted. And this seems to be the exact opposite of what Matthew 6.13 is saying. So how do we understand what's happening here? It's deeply Christological. It's, it focuses on what Christ has accomplished for us. So God was testing Jesus here in the wilderness. Satan would have been happy to kill Jesus after he was first born. If you remember um, Mark or Matthew 2.13, God warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt because Herod was about to search for the child. Why? To destroy him. This is the work of Satan. But God protects him in Jesus' active life of obedience, uh, which includes God leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, was painting a much bigger picture here. Jesus, the Son of God, was tested in the wilderness just like Israel was tested in the wilderness. They were there for 40 years while Jesus was there for 40 days. They failed. He succeeded. Mm -hmm. Jesus was also tested by Satan just as Adam was tested when tempted by Satan. Satan approached Adam with the the, uh, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus was driven into the wilderness and tested when Satan tempted him. Unlike Adam, 
Jesus responded with the word of God and resisted Satan. Matthew 4, 7, Jesus says to Satan, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where Adam failed the test, Christ passed the test. Where the first Adam fell, the second Adam succeeded. Romans 5.15 says, For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift um, of grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to many. And verse 18 says, Therefore, as one one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, what does this have to do with Matthew 6.13? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wallace summed it up in this way. Jesus can ask his disciples that the Father would not lead them into temptation and that God would deliver them from evil or from the evil one precisely because Jesus himself faced the ultimate temptation by the evil one. Whereas the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted, Jesus asked the Father not to lead his disciples into temptation. Whereas Jesus was delivered over to Satan for temptation, testing from God's perspective, Jesus prays that his followers will be delivered from the evil one. It is precisely because of Jesus' substitutionary death and life that this prayer can be recited today by Christians with the full assurance that God will answer us. This prayer is Christological. It focuses on, I think, what Christ has accomplished while having, of course, implications. Lord, lead us not uh, to be uh, into temptation. Deliver us from any temptation, uh, any of Satan's snares and devices. So God tested Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of all who believe. It rings of Genesis 50, 20, Joseph and his brothers. This prayer is not a wish. It's grounded in assurance. The Christ who conquered Satan in the wilderness, conquered on the cross, and by virtue of our union with him, says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is in the context of everlasting love, the everlasting love of God for his elect over and against the accusations against them. We are more than conquerors. That's the context of that verse. So this is the basis of our fleeing from Satan, the tempter, the accuser of the Christian. Yes, we are tempted. Yes, we fall into temptation. But like I mentioned, Luther rightly did. We go to Matthew 6.13, and we remember 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? Now, I wanted to read something. Actually, let's let's do that. How much time do we have? Uh, Let me have someone go to Romans uh, chapter 8 and then just read... uh, Verse 31 to 38 for us. Nice and loud so every, everybody can hear it. Romans chapter 8, 31 to 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Was it 38? Yes. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angel nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers and 39. Nor, height, nor, death, <laughs> nor any you. other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. That's a, those are verses that we ought to hide in our heart. That we ought to memorize if we can just to be able to recall it and um, bring it to mind when we are tempted and when we are accused by the evil one, um, when our own hearts re remind us of our uh, deep sinfulness, our depravity, and we're deeply discouraged, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Um, for the Christian, not even their sin will ultimately separate them from the love of God because they will be preserved, upheld, kept and as Philippians 1 says he will bring us to the end what he began he will complete in Christ he will bring us to completion in Christ so remember those things and again it's because of Jesus obedience through his life um, even in his wilderness temptation that this prayer uh, Matthew 6 13 lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil can be recited today by Christians with the full assurance that God will answer us. We uh, sincerely pray that God would lead us uh, on the path of righteousness, as Psalm 23 prays, and we pray that God would not lead us into temptation because Jesus was already led to be tempted, and on our behalf, he succeeded. Okay, and uh, closing out, um, some translations add, um, for thine is the kingdom, the power, um, and the glory, forever. Some say both, now and forever, or forever and ever, amen. So this part of the Lord's Prayer um, is omitted from many translations, so you probably won't see it in your Bible unless you have King James, New King James, um, or NASB, maybe. NASB has a brackets. Has in brackets, yeah, you'll see that too, it bracketed, and then a footnote. <laughs> Um, senior research professor of New Testament studies and textual uh, critic Dan Wallace and the late Bruce Mesker, uh, who was a Bible scholar and Bible translator and textual critic, uh, gave their life to this study and have become somewhat of an authority on uh, the issue. They argue uh, convincingly, in my opinion, that uh, the most reliable early uh, manuscripts um, from the Alexandrian text family, manuscript family, do not include this doxology at the end of Matthew 6.13. Um, again, you find the words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Um, and in many early manuscripts, um, it's not there. And in many of the uh, more reliable manuscripts, it's, it's not there. 
for that reason, it's been um, uh, omitted in the um, ESV, um, the TSB, and uh, many other translations. Not only this, but most early church fathers and patristic writers omit commentary on the ending of Matthew 6.13. Uh, they're in support of the non-inclusion of the doxology. These patristic writers include uh, Origen, uh, Caesarius of Nazianzus, um, Cyril of Alexander, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, and Augustine. Um, so this topic has been debated, debated, but I'm convinced that the ESV, uh, NIV, CSB, and other translations that admit the doxology at the end of Matthew 6.13 are correct. Mesker suggests that the doxology was put together in order to adapt the Lord's Prayer for liturgical use in the early church. Uh, in other words, it was something that became popular through Christian tradition. Now, if anything can be said about this doxological conclusion, it's this. It, at least, rightly so, pushes our focus back to God. First, uh, it reminds us that the kingdom is God's, not ours. Um, we don't make it. We don't sustain it. We're brought into it by God himself. He has sovereign rule and supreme authority over it, and it will have no end. Second, we're reminded that the power is God's. He has power to create, to save, and to sanctify Christians in this life. We are powerless. He has all power and authority. We submit to his power and recognize that any good done in this life by us that is pleasing to God comes by his divine power. And this leads us to giving God glory. For his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. To retain any glory for ourselves is sinful and denies God what is his due. If anything, this helpful doxology points us back to God and reminds us of who is king and who has supreme authority. I'll close by reading uh, 1 Chronicles 29.11, um, which some textual critics would say that 1 Chronicles 29.11 was likely the text that was used to format the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer in Christian tradition. Um, either way, Scripture says this in 1 Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Amen. Let's pray.